Hey, what's up? It's your boy, Health Coach Lou, and you're listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. You're going to hear conversations from health professionals from around the world. We discuss mindset, diet, exercise, and the latest in health technology. Let's go. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. So, got a special guest in the building. We have Doug Cook. Hey, man, thanks again. I appreciate you being on. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about what you do. I know you're um, a registered dietitian. Um, so, just kind of explain you know, your background uh, and, and what you do. Sure. Yeah. So, I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist. I'm uh, working, I live in uh, Toronto, Canada, and I work in a hospital setting, but I also do some consulting and writing and private practice of that kind of stuff. And specifically now where I work is I work in a psychiatric hospital. So I work in mental health and addictions. And, um, and once I started doing that, I really fell in love with nutrition and its impact on brain health. So I also work in a primary care setting. And so I do see people who have mental illness. It is, it's very interesting. You know, I had a guy, and I've, I've said this in the previous podcast, he was just diagnosed type two diabetic. He's in my office. He was saying he doesn't believe, no, diabetes was created by the government and is not real. And he doesn't have anything. So that was an interesting session with him and his caseworker right. there. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I work in, it, it is acute care psychiatric uh, facility. So there's a whole spectrum of where people are in terms of their management, but it's not uncommon to have people as part of their illness, unfortunately, um, have some form of paranoia and or like legit paranoia, clinically diagnosed paranoia or denial about their their health. So people, to your point, will, won't believe that they have diabetes or it's not real, which makes management obviously very challenging. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. How do you, and I'm sure you probably see a lot of that. How do you, how have you learned to deal with that? You know, how do you work with that? Knowing that you knowing they need to be working on their nutrition or seeing some management there, but they don't really understand it or believe it or are kind of um, skeptical. How do you, how have you learned to work with patients like that? Yeah. So, you know, there's an expression about, uh, regardless of any kind of counseling, you meet people where they are and you look for that consensus and overlap and you'll see, you find out where they, uh, will agree to talk about things. And there's ways to work in messages or to work in goals that I know they would benefit from, from a diabetes management point of view as one specific example but you can kind of get at it without necessarily talking about diabetes. Um, there's ways to kind of work it in and um, it ultimately will, will manage or help their, man, uh, their diabetes. And sometimes it's just not the teachable moment and you might have to go back there uh, and visit them when they're a little more managed or in a better state because a lot of these things fluctuate. So what they might not agree to one day, they might agree to a week later or two weeks later. So it really is uh, an ebb and flow. Right. A, a lot of patients, I can only imagine trying to, yeah. to work with that population. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, I know, and I've checked out your podcast. I think it's called the uh, Dietitian Rehab. Is that the name right. of the podcast? So I've been, yeah. <laughs> I'm really curious about that. So, you know, I, I know a lot of dietitians, especially, you know, in, in my profession, 
and I and I've always wondered if when you, when you say die, dietitian rehab, do you feel like the profession is kind of behind the eight ball a little bit as far as the the research and how nutrition is, or what what was your what was your thought behind you know starting that podcast? Yeah, so the the idea behind it was a twenty year history of just being frustrated with the profession, and I I went to back to school as a, a mature student as an adult and I'd already had some knowledge in nutrition and nutritional sciences and you know I went back and I just found that you know in healthcare there's a lot of orthodoxy and dogma and it's kind of a assumed not even assumed an accepted fact that you know clinical practice guidelines regardless of the, the discipline lags primary research by about 15 years so whatever clinical practice guidelines we're using they're not particularly based on the most um, up-to-date research. And on a side note, there's a lot of uh, organizations out there that are really trying to bridge that gap. So it's a lot shorter. So there's using nutrition as an example. There are doctors and PhDs and other practitioners who are looking at research and bringing it into practice, trying to bring it into practice much sooner. So for me, it was really about... I'm trying to do this play on word. I work in addictions as well. So there's this play on words of, you know, I'm kind of detoxing from a lot of the rigidity and orthodoxy and dogma. And the goal of the podcast is just to provide a place where I can talk to anybody about anything that has any kind of evidence behind it, just for the sake of talking and having these kind of so-called intellectual or academic discussions, as opposed to being shut down. Because if in the past it was, even bring something up that seemed a little controversial and, you know, you're almost, uh, almost bullied by your peers in the profession. So it wasn't, um, so that was, that was the impetus behind the podcast. Right. And and that's, as you said, there is a lot of research, good research out there that it's just funny that people cannot change their mind up. They're just stuck on one way, regardless of how, I hate to say old fashioned, but like it's, there's plenty of research saying that other things, there are other options and other nutritional things that work, you know, or holistic ways or whatever you want to go about it. But no one wants to, it's almost like they point their nose up at it. Like it's, like it's not real. Yeah. Well, the old kind of hierarchy of education would be, you know, you had these academic centers, you had schools, you had PhDs and, you know, this is top down approach where it would kind of trickle down and you'd have to wait for these big large-scale studies to be done and you know these things would take 10-15 years and then that slowly translates into practice guidelines which we then work with patients to put them into actionable tips and about I think it was in 1996 there was a a quote I figure it doesn't matter mid-90s to early 2000s was a quote but in the British Medical Journal by a doctor. And I, I start every presentation with this quote because it basically says that, you know, there's not always a big randomized landmark study to come up with a way to change practice. And, and quite frankly, we don't have to wait for them. If there's, if there's good line of evidence for doing something a little differently and it's safe and it's ethical and the patient is not uh, in danger and has nothing to lose, but everything to gain. Like we can't wait 10 to 15 years to try stuff. So a case in point, as you know, ketogenic diets and lower carb diets are all the rage. Right. 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't even mention that in the diabetes setting. Like if you talked about the zone diet or the South Beach diet, which is basically half your plate of vegetables, a quarter starch, a quarter protein, 
that was seen as a low carb diet, even though it was 40% calories from carb. And now, you know, everyone's jumping on the bandwagon because there is good evidence that lower carb is, is great. It doesn't mean you have to be ketogenic or more extreme, but we don't need an official statement to apply some of this common, I don't want to say common sense, but like good evidence right. to, to say, hey, let's just cut back on the carbs. Again, that's one very specific example. Yeah. I mean, in, in you know, I, I have a lot of patients that ask me about different, different diets. It's, the, the question's always the same. Is this one the best? You know, like is I've heard this is the best diet or and I don't necessarily feel like there is like a best diet. Like, you know, I am anybody that I see who's who does keto or low carb, they've they've had some great success. And I do recommend, you know, a lower carb diet for, you know, my the type two diabetics I see are pre diabetics. I can't prescribe anything as a health coach, but I can give recommendations. I have a hard time of saying that one diet is better than the other because one, everybody's different. You know, not everybody is going to be able to sustain a a diet that's higher in fat. You know, with keto, there are a lot of restrictions on certain fruits and things like that. Like I I love pineapple. I, I can't, I'm not going to give up pineapple for, you know, or, or certain fruits that are deemed not good for a ketogenic diet. And it's, but it's not for everybody, but it doesn't mean that there aren't diets out there that maybe um, have a higher carb, you know, to protein or fat ratio that aren't healthy either. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So, you know, they're, you know, the best, when I say diet, I mean, historically, diet has just meant a pattern of eating. So there was a right. kidney diet, which meant it helped to manage kidney disease. But, uh, you know, weight when weight loss kind of co-opted the word diet. So whenever you, people hear diet, they think it's about weight loss. But to your point, there's no one, the best diet is whatever's going to allow a person to achieve a given health goal. So you can easily manage diabetes, for example, um, with a, that's not ketogenic. That's, that's not to suggest that keto is the right way. So you know, one way to look at it is, I've tried to look at it, is there's no such thing as an essential food, but there are some 40 essential nutrients, which mm. are non-negotiable. So you can get those in many different ways. And it really is just turning up and down the volume. So you're right. There's no reason to give up any food. Uh, I, I don't want to say but. The, the thing to consider for people is if they're in a particular situation, I don't know what it is, it could be arthritis, it could be heart disease, it could be diabetes, and they have a stated goal of whatever it is, there's going to have to be some changes, right? So, and how far a person wants to, to take it is highly individual. So somebody, some I don't know if people are familiar with some of these measures like A1C, which is a measure of a right. three-month blood sugar. So, you know, maybe someone's got an A1C of three, which we know is not good from a cardiovascular health point of view. Maybe they've decided uh, that they're happy to get it down to nine, even though guidelines say try to get it to seven. So if they want to get it to nine and they want to make some changes, but they don't want to go as far as the next person, then that's where you meet them. And that's the goal for them. It's the old school of, you know, the health professional being taking a more paternal stance and saying this is what you need to do and this is what's right for you is kind of thankfully fallen by the wayside at least with the oh this may sound ageist but i guess with younger people younger generation professionals now we know that um it's not just so 
cut and dry that the professional knows best or knows best what's best for the patient. You you help them achieve Absolutely. their own goals. And in my experience, and I don't know about yours, Doug, if I it's it's weird because it really depends on, like you said, the type of person that I'm seeing or the not the type, the age. I may see somebody who's older and they want me to tell them what to do. But I've been trained not to do that. <laughs> you know, I've been trained that it's it's patient centered and you know, we it, I'm more of I'm on their team. I'm not telling them what to do. But it's almost like they cannot leave my office until they tell me, okay, what should I eat? What do I no, not what should I eat? What do I need to eat every day? And and that can be a challenge sometimes because I don't I don't want to do that. But it seems like the younger, it is more of a they they kind of I've said this a lot. It's 2020. You can research anything if you want. There's so much information out there. It could be a bad thing, but people have a lot more information about nutrition and about, you know, specific ways of eating. So it's not that people don't know. It's just, they need a little bit more guidance and a little more, just need a little assistance. That's what, you know, a health coach or a nutritionist and dietitian come into play a huge impact in that. But it's really the, for me in my experience, man, it's if I have somebody that's, you know, 60 or above or between that 55 and 60 range in my office and I'm trying to work with them, it, it is it is a struggle because they want me to tell them what to do. Yeah. And again, you know, if if yeah, I guess you just got to play it, uh, meet them where they are. So, I mean, some people just want a little more concrete advice and um you know yeah. hopefully they're not going to be sacrificing too much of their favorite foods but some people just want you know, just tell me what to do I, I get that as well and some people work better with guidelines and uh depending on where they're comfortable in their own kind of problem solving and ability to make substitutions and that kind of thing it's it is different and and it also depends on where a person is like if someone has is 80 versus someone who's 30 you know, they may have different goals because 80 years old, they, they right. have fewer years ahead of them. And so maybe they want to just, you know, not be as strict, but they don't want to be putting themselves in position of immediate danger. So they're happy to be a little more lax and like, who wouldn't want to be that way? I don't <laughs> <Right>. want to be <laughs> super strict and living out my last years. It might not be fun. Right. So, yeah. um, it really is. And it was a hard lesson for me to kind of let go because I'm, Maybe I am a bit of a control freak, but also I just kind of want to say in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, if you do this or take it this far, you can see mm-hmm. this kind of results. No, absolutely. So, you know, um, you know, Doug, I'm curious. So I know you, you do a lot of work or you put a lot of content out about, you know, brain health and, and things like that. So, and that's what I'm, I'm really interested in your point of view, you know, on brain health and what are, what are some, what are some things people can do to really start being mindful or you know, the first question is, you know, why should people, why should people be mindful of their brain health? Yeah. So, um, I never gave the brain much thought myself for, well, my whole life. And then certainly not as when I started practicing until about eight years ago, when I made the switch from kidney and diabetes into mental health. And then like any area, you got to kind of read up on a particular area of practice. And so it just became obvious to me that the brain is obviously super important. I would go as far as saying it's the most important organ because you can 
get a liver transplant, you can get a heart transplant, you can get a kidney transplant or go on dialysis, but the, the brain does everything. So what have you believe in, in terms of what we are as human beings, whether we have a soul or not or anything, it's pretty much understood that everything comes from the brain, our consciousness, our sense of self, our thoughts, our memory, um, our, our mood um, is all regulated by the brain. And like any organ, its structure influences its function. So function is everything we associate with the brain, thought, mood, etc. And like any organ, what we, how we treat it, uh, influences its health. So whether that's exercise or diet or so-called vices like alcohol and smoking, like people appreciate the impact on heart health because it's been so important um, and focused on for the past, I guess, almost 70 years. But I think we take the brain for granted. And I also think it's because mental health has been so stigmatized that it's really only in the last maybe 10 or 15 years that it's kind of out in the open. And, um, it's not like other organs where we can just figure out what's going on. Like we don't have a blood test for the brain. We can't do biopsies right. on the brain to see what it's doing. Like you could on a bone. If somebody, you thought someone had bone cancer, the brain is, it's the center of everything. It drives everything. So um, that's why I think it's uh, really important to take care of it. Yeah. And I, I was, I was going to say too, just to, just to add to your point, Doug, about there, there is no, there's no tracking tool. I mean, there's no app that you can you can download and track the health of your of your brain. It's it's kind of like you know football players who you know they may think they have CTE, but you don't know until they're dead and they donate their brain to science and they say, "Oh, yep, he had CTE." Well, it's too late then. You know what I mean? I feel like brain health. And I wouldn't necessarily say is one of the easiest things to try to focus on. There are there are some really good there are some really good things you can you can do to at least help with your the strength of your brain. What are some things that you recommend for people who would say, you know, someone say, hey, you know, I haven't like like you just said, I haven't really thought too much about brain health. What are some actionable goals or some um, things I can do right now to start to improve my my brain health? Yeah, there's uh you know, so-called lifestyle things. So things that really interfere with ability to think clearly and things that affect memory and uh, thought processes, et cetera, are things that we all face. So uh, daily things like stress is a really hard thing. I'll get into some nutrition things, but some of these so-called lifestyle things. So Stress really does a number on our brain and our mood, obviously, and our ability to remember. Sleep is another big one. Uh, I think sleep is now being appreciated more. I know it's now seen as a an assessment, like a, a variable when we're doing kind of a health uh, assessment. So, you know, we talk about exercise, diet, all that kind of stuff. But sleep, like people who think they can get by in five or six hours are fooling themselves. And unfortunately, wow. that's just... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of just the new normal, which uh, that word's overused, but people think it's, and, and being busy has been kind of glorified and sexy, but um, as much as I believe in nutrition, uh, I would say if you can't get your sleep in check first, you're kind of missing the mark because sleep really screws up everything. It screws up your circadian rhythm, your, it's associated with heart disease, diabetes, it throws off your hormones, all that kind of stuff. So if you had to focus on something first, I'd say you know, really try to get uh, good quality sleep and uh, exercise is good. Any kind of activity that gets the blood flowing um, 
is good for the blood vessels. So people think about the heart, but the brain is just enmeshed with blood vessels. So anything that's good for those blood vessels is, is good. But then there's for sure a lot of dietary things, if you want to talk about those. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'll, I, there's a few foods, and then I'll talk about a couple of nutrients because um, it's just a different way of coming at it. But I think people appreciate that uh, omega-3s are really good for the brain. So the brain is 60% fat. And in a perfect world, somewhere between 15 to 20% of that would be these omega-3s. And I say in a perfect world, meaning if these were present in the diet in adequate amounts. So your brain is starving for these omega-3s. And there's many ways of getting it. So from a food point of view, it's, it's fatty fish and seafood. So anything that lived in the water has these things. So it could be mollusks like clams and oysters. It could be tuna, fatty fish like salmon, mackerel, sardines, herring is going to have more of these per serving. So you can get by eating a smaller portion, but any fish or seafood is good. And not just for the omega-3s. Um, for some reason, plant foods have been touted as being you know so high in vitamins and minerals. And I think animal protein, animal foods have been just leveraged for their protein content, but animal foods are full of vitamins and minerals. So fatty fish has got vitamin A, vitamin D, all the B vitamins, choline, zinc, selenium, iron, like all of these things are important, not just for the health, but brain health specifically. Um, and then if that doesn't work, other ways to sneak them in are omega-3 fortified eggs or, or an omega-3 supplement. Questions right. or I'll I've just always run, run through my list. Yeah. I've always been curious about omega-3 supplements. Not curious, but so I, I take an omega-3 supplement every day. Like I have for years. But there there was some articles that came out a few years ago. And, and if I find them, Doug, I'll send you a link of them so you can kind of get your get a perspective. Cause so I'm gonna butcher this. So keep that in mind. But it was pretty much saying that most omega-3 supplements aren't as good as they're advertised. It was just one article that I read. I know there's maybe more, but. So when you say not as good, do you mean not as effective or the brand? Yeah. Quality? So the, the article, the article kind of talked about that. It, some, some supplements say it would have X amount of omegas in it that, that you need for heart, you know, health or, you know, whatever it was claiming. And then the study showed right. that it was not as much as they were claiming to be. So this is a huge difference between Canada and the U.S. So in Canada, the industry as of 2014 became extremely regulated. And mm. so they, food or supplement companies had to go through tons of hoops. They had to prevent, uh, present uh, research to support functional claims, ingredient claims, and the standards to um, prove like whatever was on the label was in the product um, became really burdensome for a lot of these smaller companies. So thousands of products went off the market. So we have natural product numbers. It's a highly, highly regulated industry and um, it's it, their confidence is a little better because in the U S um, there's no regulation and it's the, I think it's DESHA. There's a legislation, I think, from 1994 mm -hmm. that basically said supplement companies can put out whatever they want and only in the event of an adverse reaction can the public then go again uh, after that company. So there's going to be 
it's a bit of the wild, wild west um, in terms of what's in the product. Now, having said that, I, I'm not an expert in the marketplace, but I know there's solid companies in in the uh, U.S. So uh, Life Extension Foundation, I'm not, I don't have no affiliation with any of these. I know it's a solid company. Uh, is it Yarrow or Jaro? J-A-R-R-O-W? Um, but there's a lot of solid products out there. So there is the difference is that the burden is on the consumer to do their homework. So once you find a solid product, then there's uh, then then we would have to then see talk about is there any evidence for their use in these various uh, conditions. But yeah, so in terms of the omega threes, the bulk of the evidence shows that they're good for brain health reducing cognitive uh, decline as we age. And then at a therapeutic level, certain doses can help various mood disorders. So, but from a blanket point of view, like a bird's eye view, the brain needs these and it's to incorporate into the neurons. Um, most North Americans aren't getting enough. So there's a gap that we need to bridge and you can do that completely with food or you can do it with food and supplements. So People can take a little bit of a, an omega-3 and try to eat more efficient seafood and omega-3 fatty or omega-3 eggs, or they can take a supplement knowing they're getting the fat, but not all the vitamins and minerals that come with it. I mean, food first is, is arguably kind of the way to go, right. um, but that doesn't mean you don't leverage the tools that are around you. At least that's my philosophy. So if people want to consistently get it in, then supplements are perfectly, perfectly suitable. I mean, I, I I still recommend them for patients. I mean, at, at this point, the only thing that I say bad about omega supplements is are the burps. Like, hey, man, if you're going to take them, take them at night so you don't have to deal with those fish. Like, it's very it's very important to get that stuff in. Yeah, for sure. No, I was just going to um get your get your thoughts on type three diabetes and and sugar but you know i'd love to hear what you're about to say oh i was just going to quickly go through the list the other good brain foods are dark green vegetables um and that's because dark green vegetables and leafy vegetables have lutein and zeaxanthin which may people may have heard of in relation to macular degeneration or eye health but these carotenoids Carotenoids are like beta carotene and lycopene. They, the lutein and zeaxanthin get concentrated in the brain and help to preserve cognitive function. And then in terms of four nutrients that are good for healthy moods are iodine, zinc, iron, and magnesium. And, you know, maybe rather than going through all of the foods, I mean, anyone can just open a browser and say best sources of iodine, zinc, iron, and magnesium. So these are many nutrients that intake or diet surveys of both Americans and Canadians show that um, many people are lacking. And there's a lot of medical conditions that can interfere with the, getting enough of those and medications can interfere with them. So those are some heavy hitters in terms of nourishing the brain for brain health and healthy moods. Yeah, you know what, that's um, that's a good point you brought about, you know, medications. I'm, I'm assuming your population uh, that, that you that you work with you know, as far as work, I don't know what kind of you, I mean, I know you do some consulting, but, you know, I see a lot of people that are a lot on a plethora of medications, you know, a, a lot of medications. Um, and I know some, you know, there are a lot of supplements that I may recommend. I don't recommend a whole lot of supplements because one, I don't know a whole lot about them. I just recommend the one that I, I use that I know are highly researched through, I, there's a website called examine com that I put everything through. So the ones I use, I feel like are pretty legit. What would you recommend someone to do who may be on a lot of medications 
that, for example, can't have, you know, leafy greens because they're on Coumadin and, and, you know, they can't, they can't do that. Are there, are there alternatives to, you know, to that for someone who's on a lot of medications? Well, there's ways to, to bring in these foods that work with medications. So uh, that's the kind of short answer. So it really is working with, uh, with what they have. There are some medications that have theoretical risks. Um, you mentioned vitamin K. So, you know, I used to work in dialysis and uh, people are all on Coumadin or Warfarin or for blood thinners for the dialysis procedure because you don't want blood clots. So, right. I mean, that's a specific example. I don't know if you're asking specifically about that, um, but there are ways to, to work with these foods. And um, often it's about uh, doing a little bit of work that might mean uh, portion controls to get uh, so people are getting something. It's often easy to say, choose this and avoid that. For some clients and patients, it's easier for them to think in those kind of dichotomous or binary terms because they don't want to get overwhelmed with making swaps or doing portion control. Um, but for the people who are motivated, both the practitioner and the patient, there's ways to incorporate foods that are rich in these nutrients that won't aren't contraindicated for the medication or the medical condition. And then even if, you know, uh, lutein is really high in green vegetables and they can't have it or don't want to have it, there's other food sources. So it could be egg yolks or, you know, there's, there's a lot of, usually a lot of workarounds. It just takes a little bit of uh, homework. Absolutely. Thank you for that information. Um, you know, one thing, and, you know, be, before we, we get going here, I want to get your, your thoughts on, and it's something that, it's actually kind of new to me within the last couple of years. I knew I didn't know that there was a thing called type three diabetes. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading on it lately uh, in, in that, in the connection between, you know, sugar and, and the brain. Yeah. So the term type three diabetes uh, was coined, I believe in 2005. So about 15 years ago, it's not wildly, understood it's not certainly part of the everyday vernacular like people aren't no. talking about it like they are type type one and type two but simply put like you know you we eat foods with carbohydrate or some carbohydrate is produced from protein and fat to fuel our body so our everything will use glucose like red blood cells and our neurons our brain tissue our muscles and some some of the sugar goes into fat and is converted into fat for storage for future use this is all normal so what mm -hmm. type 3 diabetes is and so fat cells and muscle cells can become resistant to insulin and that's what we normally call type 2 diabetes but the brain cells the brain as an organ can also become resistant to insulin and so the sugar will build up over time. And so that resistance, the inability of the brain to take in glucose for energy is what's loosely referred to as type 3 diabetes. It is a, uh, an underlying or rather a con one contributor, uh, possible contributor to cognitive decline, broadly speaking. Um, where there's a lot of research is specifically in Alzheimer's disease. So if that's what that is. I don't and Yeah, absolutely. I'll pause if you wanted. Yeah. And so as we get older, it's just a fact of life. All of our tissues become somewhat insulin resistant. So that's why we, you know, 
people's blood sugars and their A1C will increase a little bit as a fact of aging. And so one way to counteract that is to try and be active and you know, eat healthfully and all that type of stuff. Sugar. So when we talk about carbohydrate and glucose and sugar, these words get interchanged all the time. Um, but for the listeners, if you eat a food with carbohydrate, with, which is any grain or grain product, any fruit or vegetable, yogurt, milk, and these things called legumes or pulses, so dried beans, chickpeas, lentils, and peas, dried peas, when we eat those, they're digested and they turn into glucose, and that's what we talk about. So it's not that sh- glucose or sugar is nece- necessarily bad because your brain will use sugar and oxygen to uh, to create energy for itself. The problem is if we have uh, diets that might be too high in sugar and or carbohydrates. So there's a word called glycemic load where we're just maybe eating too much concentrated sugar because sugar is added to everything. Or we're maybe eating a little more concentrated carbohydrates for a given activity level. So maybe we're eating too much pasta and bread in that sense, those uh, foods have gotten a bad rap. that kind of constant input of sugar and the requirement of insulin release can sort of accelerate the insulin resistance. So I don't want people to be afraid off of food to think that if they eat fruit or pasta, they're going to cause Alzheimer's disease or type three diabetes. That's, it's not that straightforward, but that's what that, that's what type three, three diabetes means. And, you know, sugar inherently isn't bad. It's about watching the amount of sugar. And then if somebody does have insulin resistance, you know, even like with type two, if you have insulin resistance and you have type two diabetes, there's some degree of insulin resistance in the brain. And so it's not just about, you know, your heart. It's also about your brain and preserving cognition as you're ready. Yeah. (laughs) But there's, there's, there will be people out there that will, will hear type three diabetes or something like that and think, or what about what about the sugar in fruit? Or is is and they will put sugar as it's the same sugar that's in maybe something that's highly processed, and feel like oh I can't have any sugar at all, or I'm going to get Alzheimer's or some kind of decline in my cognitive function, which is not really yeah. true. No, it's not, and unfortunately. Um... It is a real struggle to try and frame this properly, these messages, and to put this stuff into context and to counter so much of the outright incorrect information, um, slightly misinformation, or the way others communicate this, that they, because you said at the start that people can research anything. And so I find most of my job is, it's a form of education because I'm trying to uneducate people some, yeah. uh, with, with some of the things they've learned. Um, so myth busting, if you will, but unfortunately, see what happens is, you know, there's carbohydrate, which is a broad term. And then there's carbohydrate that's stored in things like potatoes and grains, which we call starch. Then there's the stuff we can't break down in our digestive tract, which is fiber. It's still, it's still sugar molecules that we can't break apart. And then there's the stuff that we extract from food that has made life a little enjoyable, right? So we have honey and syrup and a bit of sugar. Uh, we call those sugars. So unfortunately, they've all been lumped together and all sugar is seen as, as bad and problematic. And to your point, there's difference when there's carbohydrate in what's referred to as the, a whole food matrix versus concentrated amounts that might be added to, to a food. So 
because the food has fiber and other stuff and it, it gets a little, you know, it's maybe beyond our talk right now, but it's to your point, there's the food is, is very different than putting back a 20 ounce slushy or, or something like that. Yeah, I think you, I, yeah, you, I know you have 7-Eleven in the U.S. I think Big Gulp is a 7-Eleven, so I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, like, to, to your point, I mean, it would take, you would have to eat a tremendous amount of fruit to have the impact of what a Slurpee would have on you, you know, instantly. I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. But because of the fact that there's so that there's fiber and there's so many things that you know that are in fruit that it would it would take an ungodly amount you would have to consume. Yeah, like a, a, a you know a, a soda or pop, however you refer to it, um, is going to have more, a larger amount of concentrated sugar than fruit would be. But uh, and fruit, something bulky like fruit is going to be self-limiting. So you can't, most people can't sit down and eat three big apples. They just get tired of eating and they get filled up. But you could easily put put away a 20 ounce lemonade or uh, sweetened iced tea. So um, you're right. So when, it, when it's concentrated in a, a beverage or if it's concentrated in a food like Ketchups are full of them, barbecue sauces are, and so you're adding all the stuff up. It can deliver it in a way that's a lot more concentrated or heavier hit, if you will, uh, with with fruit. So for the average person, it's not a problem. But um, I don't want people to think that they're they've got it completely wrong. If somebody does have diabetes and their blood sugar is a little out of control, you know, maybe that person might want to eat a little less fruit and maybe right. start non-starchy vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and asparagus. So again, it goes back to that comment I made. It's like, you have to work with the patient, look at their individual situation, turn up or turn down the volume. Um, and so we have these big, broad statements, you know, eating whole foods and the sugar in them is not a problem. That's true. But on an individual basis, if someone's listening or is struggling with something, well, maybe that we just modified a bit. So it's not about eliminating it, but maybe just eating smaller portions throughout the day instead of like, I don't know, two big mangoes or something. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, Doug, thank you so much for your time um, today. Uh, where can the, the people find you at on, you know, on what's your website, what's your social media, what, what things you got going on? Yeah, so people can uh, check out my website. It's uh, Doug Cook RD for registered dietitian, DougCookRD.com. And then all the social like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Doug Cook RD. And the podcast um, can be found on the website under the podcast tab, or it's Dietitian Rehab if people are already listening to podcasts on iTunes or Google or Stitcher, etc. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, Doug, again, thank you for your time. And uh, everyone, thank you for listening to the Smart Talk podcast. See you next time. <laughs>